0: One true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through the Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your
1: hosts, Jeff, better known as Pretty B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin.
0: And welcome to the 177th episode of the Nodacast titled, All. An analysis of a storm of Swords." Daenerys Three, in which Daenerys Targaryen embarks on a project for a new draconian century. Daenerys Targaryen, Neocon. Agree? Disagree?
1: A century, that's nothing. What is the Lannisters talking about having a glorious thousand year Lannister reign? Mm. Clearly, Danny's problem is that she thinks too small. Yes. <laughs> she, needs, she needs to be setting things up to rule for millennia upon millennia. I wish her luck. Yes,
0: good luck, Danny. We are all rooting for you, at least here. As always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council. R, Hand of the King, Wolf, Man, Zach. Grand Maester, Timbob, troubleshooter of systems and designer of circuit boards. Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark M. Sir Keith J, Master Whispers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Archmaster June, heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the Other Red Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, Ward of the West, Harold the Golden Tooth, Master of the Banefort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, Lord Jacob Sisson, too, the head of the King, Lady Zena of Learion, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur, and Prince and Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Kelly, Warden of the, Warden the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew, the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tins Dent, the Trog Warrior, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyoncé's favorite, state, and Herald of Sharon, Bastard Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the D's and Gentlemens and the non Non-Binary, not an army Hold over, the way for T Well. Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of h Town. Venaris of House Cocari, the first of her name, Princess of, da- of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the work, Queen of Pencils, and the eraser in the first draft. Queen of Monochrome, Devity the Great, Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kings, Better Paints, of Drawings of the Michelangelo, of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christophe Logus, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians. Sir Josh No, Bastard Bounty Under the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Waste, Lord Peter, Great Rob Stark, the Cataver King, and Horror of Harrenhal, Hall. Hold Up, the Holder of Cups. Sir Nib, Sir Tim, the Knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Burger Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf, and the Pillar of Autumn. Joe Snow, King of the Metro, protector of the Tri-State. Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who brings balance to the kingdoms. Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard. Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Wardens of the South, and the patron of free-willing bisexuals. Lady Jemisa, she who suggests the coconuts migrate. Lord Christopher of Arendelle, official ice master deliverer, the valiant, pungent reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and princely concert to his ginger-sweet love queen Anna. Lord Sir Septon Brothers Sir Grizzly Adams, the king's justice Lord of the Kingswood, and Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Anonymous II, Lord Tyler, the Prince that promises to wait patiently for the Wind's Winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, hopeful, romantic, and unrepentant shipper, Lord Monsef, the severed head of a Targaryen Prince riding on the Council Walls, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunachar Castle, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and the Warren of the Western Reserve, Lord Timothy Marshall, Master of Roads and Bridges, Lord Joe R., and Lady Christina H., Thank you to all of our Not a Small counselors.
1: Thank you, counselors, as always. And
0: our spoiler warning. As we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan develops, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. So normally here, we'd have a question from one of our Sworn Sword or higher-level patrons, but I wanted to take the opportunity to let everyone know that for the next few months, I, Jeff, will be taking some time off from the notacast podcast. I know... <laughs> I know it wasn't that long ago that I was taking some time off from podcasts for work, but this is kind of necessary for me for both professional and for for personal reasons. I'm very thankful for all of you for you know continuing to listen to us now over four years into our project, and I thank all of you for your ears and thank you for so many of us for supporting us on Patreon. It, it means a lot to me, so thank you. And so I, I think for the plan, the overall plan, I am looking to be back. In the July time frame to pick up the thread of *A Storm of Swords*, with the Storm of Swords*, Sansa three, which is kind of the f- first chapter of the second act uh, of *A Storm of Swords*. Which I think is what I would call three weddings and a funeral, so to speak, in that second act, right? You know, three weddings and one funeral. House is the funeral, if you're, looking, if you're in case you're wondering. But even while I'm gone, the podcast will not come to a close, as what happened back from the May to August time frame, Emmett will continue on, and you know. I'm thankful not just for him for continuing because that's, you know, that's professional and, you know, that's that's to be expected, I guess. But I think it's more important that I'm thankful for Emmett for his his friendship and and his support for me. So. So thanks, man.
1: Of course. We're just so happy that you're going home, that you get to be with your family again. That's the most important thing. We've just been counting down the days to when you get to do so. And I'm just so glad it's finally here. And yes, even though Jeff is going to be gone for a few months, you're not going to escape the notocast that easily. (laughs) I'll still have uh, episodes coming out weekly and sometimes more than weekly. I'm going to be resuming the solo episodes I did on The Lord of the Rings, on the books that I was doing last time Jeff was away. I got like halfway through the books right up to uh, the fall of Isengard and the discovery of the Seeing Stone. So I'm going to be jumping back in with Frodo and Sam meeting Gollum, making their way down to Mordor, and then all the glorious climactic war shit that happens in (laughs) Gondor. Um, Probably next week we're going to have no new episode. I'll put up some of the older Lord of the Rings stuff so people can catch up, and then I'll jump back in the week after that. I'll also be doing some other solo episodes on the side on a variety of topics and eventually getting in uh, some guests uh, to have some guest episodes on a variety of topics as well. So we'll be doing that for a few months. I hope you enjoy what I come up with. And then we'll have uh, Jeff back to jump further into A Storm of Swords. So we love you, buddy, and we're just glad you're going home.
0: Thanks, man. I really, really appreciate that. And yes, I do love those Lord of the Rings podcasts and all of the the guest episodes, too. They're they're so much fun. And so we, we have so many wonderful friends and people who... Uh, come on here and, and participate in the these episodes with us and it and it means it means the world to us that, that you all would would care so much about this series which you know the last novel was published over 10 years ago at this point almost 11 years ago gosh and it, it it's it's great that you all are still excited for the series. And hey, you know, when we get back to July, maybe we'll have House of the Dragon stuff to talk about then. Hell yeah, possibility we could get there. Maybe I'll reread Fire and Blood while I'm while I'm taking a break, so I can be really smart on this stuff. Since I, you know, I, I have to figure out how to read first. But then maybe I'll get <laughs> once <laughs> one I figure out how to time. read. Baby Fire and Blood Volume One. It's the first thing I'm going to read. Yeah, I'll just listen to the audiobook as always. <laughs> so, all right. So when we last checked in with Daenerys Targaryen, she had met the wonderful man known as Krasis Monaclos, and had also met a new warrior group, the Unsullied. She also toured Astapor and received some advice from Joramond, who, by the way, is also a slaver. Let no one forget that. Let's find out how Daenerys Targaryen responds to all she's seen and heard in this synopsis of the most boring chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, and especially A Storm of Swords. A Storm of Swords, Daenerys three, Dracarys. All... Slave girl sent a your, your, your grace, did this one's worthless ears mishear you? Cool green light filtered down through the diamond-shaped panes of colored glass set in the sloping triangular walls, and a breeze was blowing gently through the terrace doors, carrying the scents of fruit and flowers from the garden beyond. Your ears heard true, said Danny. I want to buy them all. Tell the good masters, if you will. It's the chapter, friends, and it's good, all good from here on out. Drakaris. Daenerys thinks about how she chose a carthene gown to bring out the deep violet of her eyes. She drinks wine as she listens to the tone of the Gaskari voices, and the tone of voice that they're using is greed. All eight Gaskari brokers have two or three slaves at least, though Grazden, the oldest, has six. So Danny has Eerie, Chiqui, White, Barristan, arson i guess belwas and Jora, who by the way smells like sweat a pleasant contrast to the perfumes of these jackanapes around her all growled crazy's who smelled of peaches today the slave girl repeated the word in the common tongue of westeros of thousands there are eight is this what she means by all there are also six centuries who shall be part of a nine thousand when complete would she have them too i would said danny when the question was put to her the eight thousands the six centuries and the one still in training as well the ones who have not earned the spikes Krasnys and the other slavers more than half of whom are named Grasden for Grasden the great who founded old Gis, confer in their tokars, and crazy spiked hair wait wait Were they gelling their hair into spikes? Is Danny talking to a 16-year-old version of me with my spiked hair gelling all over the place? That's a disturbing thought. Speaking of Tokars, it was the fringe that showed the wealth of the Astapori. Silver or gold fringes for most of the Grassens here, but old Grasson has white pearls on his fringe. Very dignified, very rich. Silver-fringed Graston says they can't sell half trained boys. The gold-fringed Fat Astapori says they can if her gold is good. They bicker for a while about whether they should or could sell them as Danny sips her wine and pretends not to know exactly what they're saying. I will have them all, no matter the price, she told herself. The city had a hundred slave traders, but the eight before her were the greatest. When selling bed slaves, field hands, scribes, craftsmen, and tutors, these men were rivals, but their ancestors that allied one with the other for the purpose of making and selling the Unsullied. Brick and blood built Astapor, and brick and blood her people. Finally, Krasnys tells Day that she'll have 8,600 Unsullied. In a year, she could buy another 2,000. no. She'll be in Westeros in a year. She needs them now. Even the boys who will pick up the spears after the others have died. She even wants the boys who still have their puppies. She'll pay the same amount, but the answer is no. <sighs> okay. How about Danny double the price? Krasnys mocks Danny and says they should ask for ten times the price. Tall Grasden asks Danny in the common tongue if she has the money to buy the incel that she wants. How about they tell Danny whether she has the money as they inventory her shit? No, she could buy 1,000 with what she has, but she promised double. She can get 500, maybe 600 if she sells her crown. Danny waited for his words to be translated My crown is not for sale. When Viserys sold their mother's crown, the last joy had gone from him, leaving only rage. Nor will I enslave my people, nor sell their goods and horses, but my ships you can have the great cog, Balerion, and the galleys, Vagar, and Maraxes. She had warned Grillo and the other captains that it might come to this, though they had protested the necessity of it furiously. Three good ships should be worth more than a few paltry eunuchs. Fatgras says they can sell her 2,000 under the new terms, but Danny thinks she can't do with 2,000. She needs them all. Danny knew what she must do now, though the taste of it was so bitter that even the persimmon wine could not cleanse it from her mouth. She had considered long and hard and found no other way. It was my only choice. Give me all, she said, and you may have a dragon. There was a sound of indrawn breath from Jiqui beside her. Krasny smiled at his fellows. Did I not tell you anything? She would give us all. Whitebeard stared in shocked disbelief. His hand trembled when it grasped the staff. No! He went to money before. Your grace, I beg you, win your throne with dragons, not slaves. Y- y- you must not do this thing. You must not presume to instruct me. Sir Jora, remove Whitebeard from my presence. Jora drags Barrison, who has a Whitebeard, away, and Danny tells the slave girl that she's waiting for an answer. But Danny already knows the answer. They have lots and lots of unsullied, but no dragons. An old geese was brought down by the dragons of the Valyrian Freehold. The oldest Grasdin stirred in his seat, and his pearls clacked together softly. A dragon of our choice, he said in a thin, hard voice. The, the Blackwood is largest and, and healthiest. His name is Drogon, Daenerys nodded. All your goods save your crown and your queenly raiment, which we will allow you to keep the three ships at Drogon. Done, Daenerys said in the common tongue. Done, the old Grazdan answered in his thick valerium. The others echoed that old man of the pearl fringe. Done, said the slave girl, as she translated, and done and done, eight times done. The bill of sale complete. Krasny's Monocle says the Unsullied will learn the common tongue soon enough, but Danny can have the slave girl translator as a gift in the meantime. Danny leaves the plaza with the girl in tow, sweeping past White Ars, who taps his staff furiously on the red bricks. She knows he's mad, and he's right to be mad. When they get out between the Unsullied barracks and the plaza pride, she tells him that she wants his counsel, but don't you dare question her in front of others. The old man agrees unhappily, and Danny says that she's a queen, not a kid. Barriston agrees, but he says that she made a mistake back in the plaza. The Astapori cheated her. A dragon is worth so much more than any army. Aegon the Conqueror showed as much on the Field of Fire. Now Danny knows the story of Aegon, and she's also got a thing or two to prove as well. She turns to the slave girl and asks if she has to get a new name every day. No. And then the girl realizes that Danny spoke High Valyrian to her. What's her name? Well, her slave name is Missandei. Missandei is no longer a slave. I free you from this instant. Come ride with me in the litter. I wish to talk." Ricaro helped them in, and Danny drew the curtains shut against the dust and heat. "'If you stay with me, you will serve as one of my handmaids,' she said as they set off. "'I shall keep you by my side to speak for me as you spoke for Krasnys, but you may leave my service whenever you choose. If you have father or mother, you would sooner return to.' "'This one will stay,' the girl said. This one, I, 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 there is no place for me to go. This, I will serve you gladly. I can give you freedom.' But not safety, Danny warned. I have a world to cross and wars to fight. You may go hungry. You may grow sick. You may be killed. Valor Mogulus, said Misande in High Valyrium. All men must die, Danny agreed, but not for a long while, we may pray. Danny asks if the Ancelid are fearless, and they are, and they feel no pain due to the wine of courage. They're obedient too, fanatically so. So, what's Danny to do with the Ancelid after she's done with them? She doesn't want them, you know, to get scooped up by someone else who will oppose her in the future. The answer is troubling to Masande, but she finally tells Danny. Danny could order the Unsullied to fall on their swords, and they do it. The thing is, Danny senses that Masande doesn't want her to do this. Why? The girl lowered her eyes. Three of them were my brothers once, Your Grace. Then I hope your brothers are as brave and clever as you. Danny leaned back into her pillow and let the litter bear her armor back to Balerion one last time to set her world in order, and back to Drogon, her mouth set grimly. The night that follows is long. Dark and windy. Danny argues with Grolia about giving up the ships, and she finally heads down to the base of the ship to sleep, but finds herself restless. Danny heads back to the top of the boat, watches Ago put a new string on his bow, and Ricaro sharpen his Arak. She encourages them to continue. Hmm, weird. But why? Jorah creeps up on Danny and tells her that she should be sleeping. She needs to be strong for tomorrow. In response, Danny shifts the conversation back to something that haunts her. Do you remember Aroa? she asks him. The Lazarine girl. They were raping her, but I stopped them and took her under my protection. Only when my son and stars was dead, Mago took her back, used her again, and killed her. Ago said it was her fate. I remember, Sir Jorah said. I was alone for a long time, Jorah, all alone but for my brother. I I was such a small, scared thing. Viserys should have protected me, but instead he hurt me and scared me worse. He shouldn't have done that. He He wasn't just my brother, he was my king. Why do the gods make kings and queens if not to protect the ones who can't protect themselves? Jorah says that some kings make themselves, like Robert Baratheon. But he was no true king according to Daenerys. He didn't do justice. Fact check, mostly true. And justice is what kings do. Jorah doesn't respond other than to touch Danny's hair and I need to remind everyone here that Jorah is in his 40s and Dany is 14 years old here. 14! I hate him. That night, she dreamed that she was Rhaegar riding to the trident, but she was mounted on a dragon, not a horse. When she saw the usurpers' rebel hosts across the river, they were all armored in ice, but she bathed them in dragon fire, and they melted away like dew and turned the trident into a torrent. Some small part of her knew that she was dreaming, but another part exulted. This is how it was meant to be. The other was a nightmare, and I have only now awakened. (laughs) I have wild dreams too, and they all mean nothing, just like this dream means nothing. Danny wakes up flushed with triumph, hearing the ship Balerion waking up with her, and then she hears the creak of wood, water, and. Someone was in the cabin with her. Eerie? Jiqui, where are you? Her handmaids did not respond. It was too black to see, but she could hear them breathing. Jora? Is that you? They sleep, a woman said. They all sleep. The voice was very close. Even dragons must sleep. I, I just had the most horrifying thought about who this could possibly be in Danny's cabin. She is standing over me. Who's there? Danny peered into the darkness. She thought she could see a shadow, the faintest outline of a shape. What do you want to me? Remember, to go north, you must journey south. To reach the west, you must go east. To go forward, you must go back. And to touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. Oh, no, oh, no. it could be. It's not. Quaithe? Danny sprung from the bed and threw open the door oh my God it's Quaithe back again go away Quaith leave the story forever so Quaith listens to me thank you Quaith and vanishes and jiqui wakes up and wonders if Danny is sick no she's fine she just had a dream about Quaith the next day, Danny rides her silver to the plaza, telling herself that if she looks back, she's lost. She finds Astapor crowded with slavers and servants lining their way, and women looking down from the pyramids. She thinks this place is not so different from Karth, with everyone just wanting a glimpse of the dragons. But this makes her wonder how many of them would ever have children or grandchildren. Hmm, but why? Ago, Belwas, Masande, Iri, Jiqui, Jora, Ricaro, and Jogo accompany Danny as the dragons are roll into the plaza, chained to the platform constructed for them. Visery and Rego act like something is wrong, but Drogon rests. The rest of Danny's people 83 Dothraki, Grolioni's captains, and crews follow along and push the crowds away. I ought to have had a banner sewn, she thought, as she led her tatterband band up along the mastopor's meandering river. She closed her eyes to imagine how would how would it all look, all flowing black silk, and on it the red three-headed dragon of Targaryen breathing golden flames, a banner such as Rhaegar might have borne. The river's banks were strange or tranquil, the worm, the Astapori called the stream. It was wide and slow and crooked, dotted with tiny wooded isles. She glimpsed children playing on one of them, darting am- amongst elegant marble statues. On another, two lovers kissed in the shade of a tall green tree, with no more shame than a Dothraki at a wedding. Without clothing, she could not tell if they were slave or free. Danny finds that the Unsullied had been positioned at the Plaza of Punishment, as the Plaza of Pride was too small to contain all of the Dothraki and all of the Unsullied. The Plaza of Punishment, you see, is where every slave was brought to Asper to be punished for rebellion. There they get racked, flayed, and hanged. It's a warning to the new slaves not to rise up against their new masters. Danny thinks the slaves racked up look like Zorses with black and red skin, but as she approaches she sees that it's not Zorces, it's lines of flies and maggots crawling over the corpses of the tortured and dying and dead slaves. She stops at one and asks what he did to deserve this. Missande tells her that he hit one of his owners. This sickens Danny, so she heads to the middle of the plaza and looks at her new army of unsullied. Eight thousand six hundred fully trained unsullied, Five thousand boys standing behind them, standing straight and tall. Krasny's and the Grassens—that's actually going to be the new name of my new metal cover band. Greet Danny. They drink wine and munch on snacks. Six Astapori lancers ride around the crowd gathered at the plaza as the sun flashes bright and hot off the armor of these lancers. But their horses are nervous due to the dragons. Krasny's has a slave help Danny down and tells her that the insight are hers if she can pay. Basande says she can, and then all the wealth is brought forward for the Astapori. Six bales of tiger skins, 300 bolts of fine silk, jars of saffron, jars of myrrh, jars of pepper and curry and cardamom, an onyx mask, 12 jade monkeys, casks of ink in red and black and green, a box of rare black amethysts. A box of pearls, a cask of pitted loll, stuffed with maggots, a dozen casks of pickled cave fish, a great brass gong, and a hammer to beat with it, seventeen ivory eyes, and a huge chest full of books written in tongues that Dini could not read, and more and more and more. Her people stacked it all before the slavers. As the payment is dumped into the plaza, Krasnys tells her to ensure the Enceli gets some blood letting in to make them strong. She can sack cities along the way, for instance. The plunder will all be hers. The slaves she takes can then be marched to Astapor. When everything is marched is placed in front of the Astapori, she tells them that there's more back of the ships that couldn't be carried, and all that's left is, "'The dragon!' finished the Grasden with a spiked beard who spoke the common tongue so thickly. And here he waits." Sir Jora and Belwas walked beside her to the litter where the dro- where, dro- where Drogum and his brothers lay basking in the sun. Xigui unfastened one end of the chain and handed it down to her. When she gave a yank, the black dragon raised his head, hissing, and unfolded his wings of night and scarlet. Krasi's monoculus smiled broadly as their shadow fell across them. Hmm. Shadow falling across, I wonder what that means, Danny hands the chain with Drogon at the end of it. Krasis gives her a whip with nine leather lashes at the back of it. He names the whip the harpy's fingers and um get ready for a long bout of reading because it's about to go down. Danny turned the whip in her hand, such a light thing to bear such weight. Is it done then? Do they belong to me? It is done. He agreed, giving the chain a sharp pull to bring Drogon down from the litter. Danny mounted her silver. She could feel her heart thumping in her chest. She felt desperately afraid. Was this what my brother would have done? She wondered if Prince Rhaegar had been this anxious when he saw the usurper's host formed up across the triumph with all their banners floating on the wind. She stood in her stirrups and raised the harpy's fingers above her head for all the unsullied deceit. It is done, she cried at the top of her lungs. You are mine. She gave the mare her heels and galloped along the first rank, holding her fingers high. You are the dragons now. You're bought and paid for. It is done. "'It is done!' "'Old Grasden turns to Daenerys, "'realizing that she's speaking High Valyrian. "'The slavers crowd around Krasny, "'shouting advice on how to control Drogon "'as smoke comes out of his mouth "'and he bites at Krasny's faces. "'And, look, no more summarizing. "'We read to the end. "'Here we go. "'It is time to cross the Trident,' Danny thought, as she wheeled and rode her silver back. "'Her bloodriders moved in close around her. "'You are in difficulty,' she observed.' He will not come, Krasny said. There is a reason. A dragon is no slave. And Danny swept the lash down as hard as she could across the slaver's face. Krasny screamed and staggered back, the blood running red down his cheeks into his perfumed beard. The harpy's fingers had torn his features half to pieces with one slash, but she did not pause to contemplate the ruin. Drogon, she said loudly, sweetly for all her fear forgotten. Dracarys. The black dragon spread his wings and roared. A lance of swirling dark flame took Krasny's full in the face. His eyes melted and ran down his cheeks, and the oil in his hair and beard burst so fiercely into fire that for an instant the slaver wore a burning crown twice as tall as his head. The sudden stench of charred meat overwhelmed even his perfume, and his wail seemed to drown all other sound. Then the plaza punishment blew apart into blood and chaos. The good masters were shrieking, stumbling, shoving one another aside, and tripping over the fringes of the Tokars in their haste. Drogon flew almost lazily across, his black wings beating. As he gave the slaver another taste of fire, Eri and Jikwi unchained Viserion and Rhaegal, and suddenly there were three dragons in the air. When Danny turned to look, a third of Astapor's proud demon-horned warriors were fighting to stay atop their terrified mounts, and another third were fleeing in a bright blaze of shiny copper. One man kept a saddle long enough to draw a sword, but Jogo's whip coiled around his neck and cut off his shout. Another lost a hand to Ricaro's Arak and rode off reeling and spurting blood. Ago sat calmly, notching arrows in his bowstring and sending them at Tokar's. Silver, gold, or plain, he cared nothing for the fringe. Strong bellwills had his Arak out as well, and he spun it as he charged. Spears! Danny heard one, asked shout. It was Grasdin, the old Grasdin, and his Tokar, heavy with pearls. Unsullied! Defend us! Stop! Stop them! Defend your masters! Spears! Swords! When makaro put an arrow in his mouth, the slavers holding his sedan chair broke and ran, dumping him unceremoniously on the ground. The old man crawled to the first rake of eunuchs, his blood pooling on the bricks. The Unsullied did not so much as look down to watch him die. Rank on rank on rank, they stood and did not move. The gods have heard my prayer. Unsullied! And he galloped before them, her silver gold braid flying behind her, her belt chiming with every stride. Slay the good masters, slay the soldiers, slay every man who bears a toko or holds a whip, but harm no child under twelve, and strike the chains off every slave you see. She raised the harpy's fingers in the air, and then she flung the scourge aside. Freedom, she sang out. Drakaris, 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 they shouted back, the sweetest word she'd ever heard. Drakaris, Drakaris and all around them slavers ran and sobbed and begged and died and the dusty air was filled with spears and fire and that is the uh quote-unquote synopsis of a storm of swords three um wow it's such a boring end to this chapter i don't even know why george included it in the song of ice and fire he could have probably cut this one out what did you think sir
1: if I could erase my memory, if I could go to that, that clinic from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and have my memory erased, read one chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire fresh again, this would be the one. Like The Red Wedding, it's an immediately iconic set piece that becomes a selling point of and shorthand for the entire story. And like The Red Wedding, it suffers only from that ubiquity. People have discussed it in endless, fruitless circles, especially after the end of the show. In-universe, a huge chunk of a dance with dragons is devoted to exploring what happens next. It's so structurally foundational that it's easy to take it for granted. But it's a shame to reduce this chapter to a pivot point. We'll have plenty of time to talk about the ripple effects starting in Danny's next chapter. In this episode, I want to try to recapture the shock of it. That giddy feeling of transformation where for a moment, anything seems possible. It's a chapter about change, and the writing reflects it. An absolutely precise structure that suddenly, gloriously gives way. It's the revelation of liberation, conveyed spiritually as well as politically. If The Red Wedding is written to bring you to your knees, this one brings you to your feet.
0: I think it's an outstanding way to describe the seated chapter, and I agree. I I kind of do, I'm in the same boat as you. I wish I could read this chapter fresh, with fresh eyes. Because outside of Samuel just surviving his encounter with the others from A Storm of Swords, this scene from Storm was the first big wow moment of the book when I was first reading it. This is a giant moment of violent catharsis and it feels so good. In that, it's kind of a microcosm of Danny's overall story going forward. Torching slavers is, as I'll argue, justified, morally, politically, and most importantly for readers, emotionally. But where does this violence end and what are its consequences? I think in a lesser story, this would be the conclusion of Danny's story in A Storm of Swords. From here, a lesser author could pick up in, oh, say, five years, jump the story ahead five years, have a five-year gap, with Danny stepping off a boat at Dragonstone with her army ready to invade Westeros. But George isn't writing Wishful Women. Not exactly. And he's especially not writing Danny as a video game character. One of our our friends of the podcast, Adam Fellman, had a really awesome point about this idea of Danny as a video game character from his Untangling the Mirities Not essays from almost 10 years ago. I think it works really well because it resonates strongly with their actions in Astapor and the consequences thereof. He says Martin is not interested in merely showing characters, quote unquote, leveling up like a video game, progressing from incompetent naif to awesome badass. His main interest is in exploring his characters' values. And throughout the series, he creates drama by forcing characters to choose between their core values love versus duty, honor versus pragmatism, vows versus innocent life. I think it's just a really good way to explore Danny's character here, because as much as this is an action-packed, plot-dense chapter, it does a lot of character work for Daenerys Targaryen. And really, I think this is the moment which propels Danny's story character-wise for the rest of her arc in the published version of A Song of Ice and Fire.
1: It's impossible to overstate the importance of this chapter and just the scope of it. I use the opening word of the chapter for the title of this episode, all. It says it all. Massandai is literally referring to Danny's offer to buy all the unsullied, but on reread, it also reflects the scope of Danny's political ambition and George's literary ambition. They will take it all—no half measures, no tinkering with reforms—a big, bold swing for the fences, reshaping the future of the story. Something from which you can't turn back. We're following up on the distress and uncertainty experienced in Danny's last chapter by not only her but by George and us. We're facing a horror show of human misery and exploitation embedded in a system of institutions designed to prevent anything from changing it, as Dora laid out for Danny, How do you do the right thing under those circumstances? How do you resolve those horrors? Resolve is the right word, because resolve is what Danny is looking for. A sense of serene certainty in one's actions. A belief that you know how to confront the worst the world can throw at you. That resolve is reflected in the imagery as the chapter begins. Cool green light filtered down through the diamond-shaped panes of colored glass set in the sloping triangular walls, and a breeze was blowing gently through the terrace doors, carrying the scents of fruit and flowers from the gardens beyond. This is totally different from the way Astapor was described in Danny's last chapter, as a sweltering inferno even in the VIP seats. Now that red-hot atmosphere has changed to cool green, the heat broken by a breeze carrying the smell of fruit and flowers. Why is it different? Because Danny is different. She's still full of anxiety and anticipation, as we'll get into, but only because she has made her decision. That cool light, that beautiful scent, that's the future calling to her. This is the moment she decided to change it all, and she's fixing it in her memory the color of the light, the smell of the breeze, so she'll never forget it. The way you might stop for a second before you perform on stage or ask someone to marry you. Danny is wearing a carthene gown. Which is a way of fitting in among the slavers. The Gascari might be culturally and ethnically distinct from Karth, but they have slavery in common, the business they're here to take part in. Karth is also, however, the domain of deceptions and distractions, as we covered in Clash of Kings. Danny is only pretending to fit in. Wearing slaver garb like a second skin, she'll soon shed. Karth is a trap for the greedy, and what brings the masters down is greed. Danny senses it in the tone of their voices, the primal appetite she will use to trap them. This whole chapter, right up until Dracaris, is an information game on two levels. Danny is tricking the slavers, and George is tricking us. Danny has to plausibly behave as though she really intends to trade a dragon for the Unsullied, and the author has to convince us that that might actually happen. So you can see him kind of working through the chapter backwards. He knows how it's going to end, and then he's wondering, how can I lead my audience step by step to a revolution without them realizing it? He needs to set up a believable alternate path for Danny and then pull the rug out from underneath us. So early on in the chapter, he writes Danny's thoughts as though her intention is to save as many unsullied as possible. And that's how her offer for all the unsullied comes off at first. An isolated act of mercy, extended even to the boys who haven't been castrated yet. On reread, we know that Danny is trying to deprive the masters of any soldiers they can use against her when she flips the script. But on first read, it looks like Danny is just trying to get all these boys out and then leave. And that's plausible. It fits with what she's done before with Miri Mazdur and the other women she took under her protection in book one. It also fits with the conversations she had in her last chapter. We're primed to think that Danny is incorporating ideas from both Jora and Barristan. Jorah said she needs these soldiers to win her throne, so she's buying them. Barristan said, though, this system is vile, so she's trying to get these young men out of it and under her own more benign rule.
0: I mean, yeah, the impression Dany leaves with Mirrors is that she, again, is trying to do the best she can in an unjust system vis-a-vis what she was doing as a Khaleesi to Drogo's conquest back in a Game of Thrones. The problem for the Astapori is that she has no personal connection to them or their culture outside of, of course, her understanding of Valyrian and what the Giscari actually saying behind her back. Back in the Game of Thrones, though, Dany adopted Dothraki customs, learned their language, and even grew to love Drogo. But she does admit later in A Storm of Swords the truth about her husband. Khal Drogo could be as cruel as well, and there was never a man more dangerous. She had come to love him all the same. But in Astapor, Daenerys is a complete outsider and unwelcome. The Astaporians insult her and treat her like an ignorant savage. Daenerys, of course, is outraged by the extreme form of slavery practiced in Astapor, yeah, She's also personally witnessed it. It's not some sort of abstraction, some sort of horror that she hears in a foreign land that she has to respond to. Yet, I also wonder how much of Dini's actions in Astapor are based on how inhospitable the astapori were to her. Because mm-hmm. Daenerys will likely bring the Darth Racket to heal come the Winds of Winter and will likely use some violence to accomplish this. I mean, I think Mago is going down hard and that will be something that will feel cathartic in the same way that the Astaporia getting got feels cathartic here in A Storm of Swords. But I don't think Danny is going to systematically wipe out the calls the same way she scrubs Astaporia of the Good Masters, temporarily. Instead, the prophetic imagery found in A Game of Thrones and also the World Book that came out in 2014 has Danny gathering up the Kalisars and calls under her banner. So one wonders if the Astapori Good Masters had just been a little nicer, had tried to ingratiate themselves with Danny and integrate her into her society. I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't have all been schwacked.
1: They can only imagine. But yeah, of course that 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 sneering attitude, that kind of slimy used car salesman approach they take. I definitely think that factors into how to what Danny does, or maybe into just how. Good, She feels about it and how good the, the, the mm. reader is supposed to feel about it given how they've treated her and the masters aren't even concerned with her motivations at all. They think so little of her. They take her offer on face value. And that's not to say they're immediately on board with it. They don't like her proposal any more than they like her as Danny thinks while these masters are rivals when it comes to every other aspect of the slave state economy. They cooperate when it comes to the unsullied and why is that because as Dora said last time the unsullied are more than a product on the marketplace. They're the core of Astapor's civic defense If the city came under threat, they would need to deploy the unsilly to survive, so the masters have an incentive to cooperate here. And I think George is critiquing the purported values of the marketplace, your competition, innovation, disruption, by showing how it works when people are treated like objects, and economic and political power are basically one and the same. This is a monopoly and weaponized misery. There are no market mechanisms to improve this situation. All that matters to the masters is that the industry keeps going, that the beast is fed. Danny's offer to buy all the unsullied, even the untrained ones, would break down the machine. Suddenly, they wouldn't have enough to sell to the next consumer. Some masters are so short-sighted that they would risk destroying their credibility and temporarily leaving their city without a functioning defense just to get their hands on Danny's (laughs) money. It all comes back to greed. Most of them know better, though, so Danny has to keep sweetening the pot. She offers her goods, no dice. She offers her ships, also, no good. It looks like they're taking advantage of her desperation to jack up the price, especially when she starts offering double. But Danny holds on to her pride in the form of a crown. That's a clue as to what's happening here. That this is not going to go like Karth, and unlike with Drogo's Blood Riders, she's going to strike first. She does so by offering up Drogon, the Trojan Dragon. <laughs> what seems to the Masters and Barristan as a capitulation is actually her declaration of war. It's a foot in the door to get the unsullied on her side. She can offer up everything and it doesn't matter because she's gonna take it back. All of it.
0: I think it's also kind of interesting that Barrison's reaction to Danny offering up the dragon, it works really well to kind of sell the fact that she's doing it in good faith here. Because yeah. obviously they're looking at him and being like, Oh, okay, well so she actually means what she's saying here. Of course, she does not plan to sell Drogon in in good faith, and some fans argue that Dedy's actions here negotiating in bad faith are unjustified because she plans to cheat the slavers of their money and, of course, of their lives. As the argument goes, Danny engaged in fraud as she had no intention of giving up her goods in exchange for the unsullied. The further argument is that the eight Astapori good masters who bartered with Danny were not acting as Astapor's political structure or political ruling class. Rather, they were the merchants, businessmen, and were negotiating with Daenerys as a potential buyer of their goods and services. I think this argument is not a very good one for a few reasons. The first is that the politics of Astapor is its business, its buying and selling of the unsullied. I mean, from our limited perspective, we because we only do spend two chapters in Astapor itself, there doesn't appear to be a governing body outside the Grasdens we see here. And they are indicated to be the eight people who buy and sell the unsullied, and they join together for that purpose, where you view other Astaporian good masters who are selling other forms of slaves in, in the city itself, as we see here in this chapter. But this really seems to be it for the governance of Astapor. But I think the real argument for me is that Daenerys is under no fucking obligation to negotiate in good faith with slavers. The sheer evil of slavery in and of itself, the specific moral horror of how it's practiced in Astapor means that the only thing for a good person to do is to betray the system and betray the people who are engaging in the practice of slavery. As we talked about last time, if Danny negotiates in good faith with the good masters, she actually legitimizes the practice of slavery, of this particular practice of slavery in Astapor even. I'd argue that in essence, even if Danny eventually frees the Unsullied, she becomes a slaver herself. Regardless, the immediate reason why Danny is purchasing these insulate is that she plans to burn this entire society to the ground. So, practically speaking, take away all the morals and ethics, which you should never take away, but take that all away for a moment. Practically speaking, what does it actually do for Danny practically if she negotiates in good faith? And then immediately turns around and has the Unsullied kill all the Astaporri.
1: It certainly lends to her negative reputation in Essos that she she's a deal breaker and can't be trusted. You see the same thing happen after she negotiates with the masters of Yunkai. And one of them gets their Tokar a little burnt by her dragons. But the other part of me is like, you know, they obviously have an incentive to make up crazy propaganda about Danny anyway. As we also see unfold in A Dance mm-hmm. with Dragons. There's no real way to, to get these folks on her side given the the uh, lethal threat she poses to their livelihood. So yeah, I think you know, there's first of all, there's something just perverse about focusing on norms given the sheer scale of human suffering and as for, But also, as you say, if, if once you commit yourself to that goal, it seems yeah, I think a little silly to care about whether whether she's she's operating in good faith. This this is war. She's declaring war now, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's that's ultimately the the important takeaway. It's ironic that prophetic figures like Danny undergo temptation, but he or she's the one tempting the masters, making them an offer that they can't refuse always more meat for the machine and dragons are miracles that's a point of pride with the Gascari given what given what went down with valyria now we could have a dragon of our own that's something they value even more than hard currency a shortcut to being an empire again and as krasnas hints this is what they wanted all along when he says see i told you she would offer up anything the first time reader already knows what this means for danny drogon is part of her soul the embodied memory of her sun and stars the only time she ever felt at home this is her price for saving the children on reread, even the offer itself makes Danny sick at heart. The idea of it, despite it being phony, is bad enough. That's how close the dragons are to her. Berriston, naturally, is horrified by this. Not only that Danny is doing business with the slavers, but that she's giving up a dragon to do it. It fits Berriston's earnest to a fault character that he's breaking down over a phony offer. These are the early stages of the planning, and clearly Arsten was never cut in on the deal. It (laughs) reminds me of how in A Feast for Crows, the Sand Snakes go up one by one to their uncle Duran Martell and order him to seize revenge, when in fact, he's already had a revenge plan in the works for years. He just hasn't told them about it. It's interesting how Barristan objects to this. He doesn't bring up the horror of the slave society, despite being so outraged by it before. Instead, he objects to giving up Drogon, saying he is worth more than any army you could buy with him. And that is a logistical argument, handed down from the field of fire, as he says. But I think there's something spiritual about it as well, something more evanescent. The dragons are sacred to Barristan, a symbol that he's doing the right thing. The gods are on his side. I must have chosen the right ruler. Look, she has dragons. (laughs) If Danny barters a miracle, that feeling might dry up for the old man. Danny feels the wrongness of it too, but puts on a face. And that's her lesson to him. You keep it together in front of outsiders. You can tell me I'm wrong in private, but don't undercut my reputation. And that's solid leadership. Danny has an eye toward coalition management that only breaks down when she puts herself in the position of including slave masters in that coalition. Ironic that Barristan was worried she'd be like her father. Now it seems to him that she's got the opposite problem. She's giving up too much power. So Barristan falls back on Egon the Conqueror as a reference point. He established that a dragon can defeat an army, an escalation of power that changes the game. That's where the Iron Throne came from in the first place.
0: Yeah, I mean, Aegon the Conqueror works as a stand-in for the perfect balance of war and peace that Hmm. would-be Targaryen monarchs should aspire to, or so bears would have Danny believe. At the same time, Jorah Mormont wanted Danny to be like an enhanced version of Rhaegar, good yet ruthless. Aegon did fulfill that kind of Tywin-esque, who by the way is a hypocrite, model of serving enemies fire and steel until they went to the knees and then helping them back to their feet after they sued for peace. And Rhaegar did provide a rallying banner that some, Jon Connington for instance, wanted to fight under due to his inherent nobility, not just because of his inherent nobility for Jon Conn, other things came into that, that equation as well. But it feels like Barris and Joris intentionally simplify Aegon and Rhaegar into paragons of power or champions of chivalry for Danny. And it's almost like they're instructing a child, kind of simplifying the story for a kid rather than giving her advice as a queen. Barristan particularly fanboys the dragons, perhaps viewing them as tokens of a bygone era of Westeros, the ideal that made Westeros great. It's kind of an immature way of looking at the dragons, but that makes sense given what Barristan will later think in A Dance with Dragons. Sir Barristan knew no more of dragons than the tales of every child hears, but he knew Targaryens. Because the dragons and their usage is complex, and Aegon didn't just land atop Westeros with his sister wives and lay claim to Westeros. Aegon, Rhaenys, and Visenya invaded Westeros with an army, albeit a small one, as fire and blood relates. Accounts differ on how many swords set sail from Dragonstone with Aegon and his sisters. Some say 3,000, others number them only in the hundreds. And then in the same vein, Aegon's failed attempt to conquer Dorne through extensive use of his dragons shows the limitations of simply using air power to win the day. Westeros is not 1999 Kosovo, people, and Daenerys isn't trying to deter Joffrey from committing genocide. Rather, she wants to sit the Iron Throne to control the ground, and she does need an army to do that.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point. You need that, that mix of tangible and intangible power. You need that uh, legitimacy on down from Egon, but you also need your own dragons to, to make it real for people. But as Danny says, she's not just trying to follow Egon's model. She intends to prove a few things of her own. As she sees it, she's not recreating the old way. She's creating a whole new one. She's still using a dragon to change the game, but in a different way. And we see that new way in action with Masandai. Here we shift back to the language game that plays out in these chapters, culminating, of course, in Drakaris. Masandai realizes that Danny is speaking to her in High Valyrian. Her eyes go wide as she takes in all the implications of that. So Danny heard Masandai translate for the Masters. So she knows what the Masters actually said, and she must have had a reason for doing that. All Masandai can say as it hits her is, "Oh." I think she stands in for the reader at the end of the chapter, as we're blown back into our chair, robbed of our ability to speak. All we can say is, oh. Affirming Masandai's name is part of the language game. The dehumanization of Slaver's Bay is so total that Masandai is accustomed to referring to herself as this one. It's like she's viewing herself from the outside as her masters do, adopting their perspective to deny her own. Who is she? Ah, oh, she's just this one. Her reclaimed freedom and her reclaimed name go hand in hand. She's not used to talking about herself as I, a person with inherent worth who ought to be treated with dignity and respect. The control extends as far as language. Well, actually, in the real world, it often starts with language if you want to control somebody. Missandei has to reassemble herself on the fly. The Unsullied will soon be in a similar position, and that's what Danny wants to talk to her about. It's all these questions of the Unsullied. How much is left in them? Can I even free them? Are they truly numb to all feeling and desire? Danny asks Misandai whether the Unsullied would turn on her if she resold them and their new owner ordered them to kill her. Only on reread do we know what she's really asking. Will the Unsullied fight alongside me after I free them or revert to their old masters? It's a legitimate question. Misandai has been freed. Danny says, I free you of this instant. But practically speaking, she has nowhere to go but wherever Danny goes. She has no resources or connections of her own. Same goes for the people Danny frees in Astapor and Yunkai. They really have nothing to do but follow her to Marine, where some of them choose to sell themselves back into slavery because conditions there are so dire. Danny realizes that the Unsullied would, would face a similar situation after helping her win the Iron Throne. What would they do? Where would they go? Jorah said that the status of the Unsullied as numb, nameless eunuchs was actually an advantage for Danny because it meant they wouldn't commit war crimes. Now we see the flip side of the coin. They have been shaped so thoroughly for war. That it's hard to imagine them living in peace missandai says that danny could just order them all to kill themselves that's how total their enforced dedication to duty is the point of self-annihilation but as it turns out the unsullied can still feel and make choices and missandai affirms those enduring bonds when she says she doesn't want them to die like that because she has two brothers among them just like danny has two brothers she's alienated from although for different reasons in her thoughts danny praises missandai as brave and clever and hopes her brothers are the same. She thinks of the Unsullied as whole people who can be brave, who can be clever. She's not thinking of them as just uh, fungible objects the way the masters do, or Jorah for that matter.
0: Yeah, and those two brothers eventually, as we're gonna find out, have names. Um, their names are Marcellin and Mosador. Lostor is killed early in a Dance with Dragons by the Sons of the Harpy and Marine after being ambushed on patrol in that city of Marine. And Marcelin, though, ends up training the Freedmen Company, known as the Stalwart Shields, and gets named their commander at the end of a Dance with Dragons. And they end up wrecking the Yunkai during the Battle of Fire. It's a very cathartic moment, similar to what's happening in this chapter. In the grand scheme of things, I would like that Marcelin isn't just a duty robot. He embodies what you were emphasizing, that these people have wills and thoughts of their own. They're not devoid of emotion and desire. They are acting. They might have been diluted, as Grey will later talk about how the wine of courage will dilute their feelings of pain, but the humanity is not totally gone from them. Masada, though, I think also demonstrates something else, and that is that the other part of what you're saying, these people have nowhere to go but to follow Danny and for many of these people the cost of following daenerys targaryen is their lives
1: it's unfortunately true they end up giving it all so to speak in, in service to her and that's one of the, the big complexities of danny's character is that she's liberating these people but where where do they go next what what will be what's the end game for them if danny's ultimate end game is westeros how do you fit their lives into hers when she's alone with her dragons danny cries out of grief and fear she feeds them but not herself this gives cover to the first-time reader that she's really going to give Drogon up. Oh, well, look how intense she feels about it. This must be legit. On reread, we know that Danny is just trying to hold on to her resolve in the face of the sheer scope of what she's about to do. She's sacrificing herself for her children, and that's a major part of her story. The anger burns those feelings away, as it will again in Marine. She huddles up with her captains, and George doesn't tell us what they talk about. That's a perfect example of how to wrong-foot your audience by withholding information. First time through, we don't even notice the omission. We don't even notice that there was a whole scene we didn't get to see.
0: And I also like the little detail that immediately after meeting up with Jorah and the Dothraki, which is the next name of my new metal cover band, of course, we see Ago stringing his bow and Ricaro sharpening his Arak. It seems like normal, everyday stuff, but the reality is that these guys are getting ready for war. It's the little things you don't catch the first time, but it really stands out on Riri, these kind of little teeny tiny things you see and are like, what twelve thousandth reread of a Song of Ice and Fire that make it up uh, make the, the the journey of discovery all the all the more new and exciting this time around, too.
1: And on reread, we can guess this is where Danny unveils the plan. Hence as you were saying the Dothraki getting ready for battle, and Jorah saying that she needs sleep for the quote, hot and hard day ahead. She confesses her vulnerabilities to him, despite the awkwardness created by his desire for her. She really has no one else to talk to. It's a quiet breath before the storm, as Danny talks about both why she's doing this and why she dreads it, unveiling the complexity of her character. She remembers Aroha, the Lazarene girl she rescued from Drogo's warriors, only for Mago to rape and kill her after Drogo fell. Danny says she remembers feeling small, feeling scared and powerless, and utterly alone. According to the norms with which she was raised, Viserys was supposed to protect her, as her brother and her king. Instead, he made everything worse, right up until his death. For Danny, this constitutes not only a personal betrayal but the collapse of a divine order. The gods make kings and queens, according to those norms. Why would they do that if those rulers won't protect their people, but instead prey on them? I think Jorah reaches the only fair conclusion here. Kings ultimately make themselves, as Robert did. But what was he king for? Well, not much, as we saw in Book 1. Robert was basically an absentee monarch. He did no justice, Danny says, and justice is the only righteous pursuit of power. It's the ideological foundation for her rule. And it's inspiring, just like when Davos says a king protects his people or he is no king at all. You're supposed to cheer, you're supposed to agree. So then why is she crying? Why is she so afraid? Because, as she'll say again in Dance with Dragons, she's worried that this is going to go just like it did with Aroha. Her individual efforts won't be enough. Sometimes they wind up making things even worse. What if there is no way to be both powerful and good? Think about Dany's relationship to the events she's describing. Viserys failed to protect her, in part by selling her off to Drogo. But then Drogo was the one to rid Dany of Viserys. He promised to take her home so she wouldn't be subject to assassination attempts. But he brutalized thousands of people in the progress. Eroha was one of them. So was Miri Mazdur, who struck back against both Dany and Drogo, declaring that Dany's savior tactics were superficial and ignored the context of her suffering. So even while Dany's mission itself is as righteous as it could possibly be, her perspective, her place within events, remains ambiguous and complicated.
0: It's similar to the specter of Eris the Second Targaryen, which is hovering over Daenerys and her actions. She hasn't fully grappled with who her father was, and still hasn't by the end of the published books. So even while Robert is a neglectful king who didn't do much in terms of justice, her father was the one who was actively pursuing injustice as his paranoia worsened with age. That's also part of the ambiguity for Daenerys too. She lives in the shadows of her forebears, and I think a lot of people have made hay about whether Daenerys is mad like her father. And I don't know that's necessarily the argument that George wants to pursue here. I think as as we've uncovered in the past and others have, have talked about, a lot of what's happening with Daenerys Targaryen and the the quote-unquote madness that she might have inherited from her father is about the perception of others and what Danny feels internally about her character, whether she herself is becoming like her father. So I think the ambiguity is... As much external for what Danny is seeing, but also it's much more found in the internal way that Danny is evaluating herself and her actions, because this is all going to ripple
1: out for the rest of her arc. And that ambiguity exists, I think, because Danny has just experienced the full range, right? She's been a powerless victim like Eroha, which is why she sympathized with her and sympathizes with the unsullied now. But Danny is also a queen, a Khaleesi, the mother of dragons. The ultimate conclusion she reaches here is that if the gods make kings and kings don't deliver justice then both the gods and the kings have failed. Not just obviously unfit rulers like Viserys, but well-intentioned ones like Rhaegar. Danny has clearly internalized Jorah's argument that Rhaegar fell short and she has to move beyond him as well as Egon the Conqueror. She has to do what he didn't do. The gods can't change things, nor will kings, nor will my own family. Danny will have to do it herself. Which means becoming both a ruler and a god. In her dreams, she's all-powerful. Riding her dragon into battle at the Trident, melting the usurper's army away like morning Dew. Again, she's doing what Rhaegar couldn't, redeeming his defeat, making it so she was never exiled. And Dany thinks to herself, this is reality. This is what it's supposed to be, and the life I know, that's the dream. It's heartbreaking because I think that's a universal desire, but it can't come true. Rhaegar will always have lost. Danny will always have been exiled. We can't call our dead back and undo their mistakes. That slippage between the dream world and the real world continues when she wakes up to find, of course, Quaith, hovering <laughs> over her in the darkness, only for her to vanish instantly when Danny calls for her handmaids. So, what just happened here? Given Quaith's later appearance in a dance with dragons, it seems most likely that she's communicating via glass candle. So, when she vanishes, it's her cutting the connection. Quaithe is checking in on Danny, her chosen messiah, like Bloodraven does with Bran. We'll talk more about what she says toward the end of the episode, but it only enhances the sense that Danny is acting on a cosmic plane as well as a political one, carrying out the prophecies of the Undying as well as following up on the violence inflicted on the Dothraki Sea. Danny is afraid of herself, and she needs to believe that she is destined to do this, or she might lose the nerve to do so.
0: Yeah, Dany's dream, followed by the visit of her prophetic mentor, of sorts, works to imbue her with a sense of destiny, a purpose. But she's not alone in experiencing prophetic dreams, because other Targaryens had prophetic dreams and they acted on them. Dany's the Dreamer famously dreamed of the destruction of Valyria. Aegon the Conqueror possibly had dreams that inspired his conquest of Westeros, as George indicated when he published Fire and Blood, Volume 1. Rhaegar, as we talked about in our analysis of a Storm of Swords, Daenerys 1, also likely or potentially had prophetic dreams or experiences that guided him towards becoming a knight. I think the Rhaegar model works as a prototype to foreshadow Danny's purpose and place because Rhaegar may have had dreams, he then may have read the Jade Compendium as we talked about, and then he may have also visited or likely visited the ghost of High Heart to determine his future. Daenerys here receives a prophetic dream which shows her as a dragon rider to defeat the others and then is visited by a prophetic mentor. Back in the Game of Thrones, Dany had a dragon dream while in a coma and then met up with Miri door for some prophecy after, of course, she was brought into the, the Shadow Ten. And then she birthed dragons. Well, it's not quite a pattern. For instance, Dany only has a series of dark, disturbing, shapeless dreams of dragons before she rides Drogon in A Dance with Dragons. She doesn't get a visit from a prophetic mentor figure right after that. This dream, I think, though, and visit by a prophetic mentor figure followed by a momentous event, signals that Daenerys is not simply a political conqueror. Daenerys, like friendship, is magic. Uh, it is magical. She has a massive role to play bestriding the physical and ethereal worlds. It's more than smashing the slave trade and upending the balance of power in Essos. But it's also smashing the slave trade and upending the balance of power in Essos. Ultimately, these back-to-back magic moments set the context of Dracarys, her prophetic sense of destiny informing her practical political actions. And now Daenerys of House Targaryen is mentally ready to cross the Triton, become the Conqueror, and bear fire and blood on those who have more than earned it.
1: And so we arrive at what everyone remembers about this chapter, the crescendoing set piece of Danny sparking a slave revolt among the Unsullied of Astapor. It's perfect in terms of pacing, a steady acceleration that starts slow before ramping up so fast the reader can barely keep up with what's happening. That structure allows George to dive deep into Danny's thoughts at first before rolling into the action. It all starts with her thinking, if I look back I am lost, for the first time since the birth of the dragons. This is a more complex concept than it's usually given credit for. It's often reduced to a single-minded mantra in which Danny fights off regret. But it's also literally true in this scene. Because the tiny Khalasar behind her is not an army, no matter how skillfully she arranges the march. Egon also had the smaller army, up until the Field of Fire, but Danny isn't relying on her dragon, she's relying on the unsullied. And despite Miss assurances, it's entirely possible that this is going to go wrong, and they'll fight against her. If so, she'll have gotten all the people behind her killed. The stakes are terrifying as much as they are exhilarating. Danny is betting it all on a roll of the dice. If she really looks at it, she's going to lose her nerve. Danny hasn't needed to think about looking back and being lost since her dragons were born. They're the future. Rebirth of the past, return of home, something you can look forward to, literally. Now she's setting out to forge a new path into unknown territory. It's a parallel scene to the dragon birth. Danny senses her power as an agent of transformation, even transcendence, and reaches out to remake the world but she's all too aware that she is making this up as she goes along, inventing something to believe in for herself as much as anyone else. If you look back, the spell breaks, like with the Orpheus and Eurydice. You can't afford to break character for a second, or everyone will see the puppet strings. Even as Danny keeps that mask, the mask of the confident leader who knows what she's doing, she's about to drop the mask she wore for the Masters. When the chapter began, she was wearing a Carthene gown, the flashy lore that said she was one of them and came in peace. Now she comes dressed as one of the Dothraki, ready for war, ready to do what Jorah said would never happen, sacking Slaver's Bay. She's also wearing a bell in her hair. Danny thinks its chime sings of the death of the undying, a lovely turn of phrase that captures the sense of legend unfolding and snapping into place around her. She's got her clothes from the first book, her victory from the second book. It's all coming together. It was all leading to this.
0: Yeah, and I love that. I love, and I had forgotten that the first bell signaled that, of her, her victory over, over the warlocks in in uh, in Karth. I think that's really cool. Because in the next chapter, she's gonna be wearing two bells when dealing uh-huh. with the Yunkish and their sellsword armies because Aspore is about to become her second victory. And, you know, to to your point about the the garb that, that Daenerys is wearing in a Storm of Swords, Daenerys three I do think that Amelia Clarke, who played, of course, Daenerys Targaryen in The Throne Show, she does wear a really eye-catching blue dress slash garment, and that works really well for the color contrast of the Mm -hmm. scene from The Throne Show Season 3, which is kind of that bright blue pastels contrasted against the brown-red of Mm Asterborn. It works really really well visually. But I do wish that she had come in the Dothraki garb from Season 1 again to, like you said, symbolize her return as a conqueror, that she's about to bring war upon these people.
1: And there's another connection to Karth when Danny notices that in both cities, everyone from every social class just wants to see her dragons. Barrison's not the only one to treat them like an iconic symbol. People worship the dragons with equal parts, fear and desire. As Quaith said, they are fire made flesh, and fire is power. People are drawn to the spectacle of imagination and ambition brought to life. They want something to believe in, a story to tell their grandchildren, a legacy. But when Karth was reminded that dragons are dangerous, the fallout was limited to the House of the Undying. The rest of the city kept humming along. Here, Danny is lighting a powder keg, and she's not so high in her own messianic supply that she can ignore the potential consequences of that. Danny is realistic enough to know that the violence could spill out well beyond her control. She mourns for them before it even happens, mourns for the grandchildren they'll never have, who will never hear the story of the day the last dragon came to town to remake it in her image. It's a dizzying glimpse of her place in the pattern. Past, present, and future interweaving. The same horror of destiny we see a lot in Bran chapters. After all, when Danny wonders how many of them will never have children, she's also talking about herself. As she always thinks, the dragons are the only children she'll ever have. Speaking of the dragons, they are freaking the fuck out about this. <laughs> well, Regal and Viserion are, anyway. They're like Barristan, unaware of the plan, devastated by what seems to be Danny selling them out. Drogon though is balled up into himself just one eye glinting he seems to know what's up here Danny has always been closest to him he looks ready to burst because that's what she feels like inside George patiently takes us through the layout of Danny's following this person's writing here this person's writing there so we can all we can easily visualize it when they all spring into action against the masters as I said it's a pretty tired and tattered following she has if you don't know what's about to happen but that's Hmm. fitting for a messiah wandering the desert like she is She has to imagine what it should look like. A banner in the wind, the sigil of House Targaryen flying proud once more, as in Rhaegar's day. And you can see there how complicated Danny's relationship to Rhaegar has become. He's someone to improve upon, but also someone to honor. Viserys was her big brother, and also her tormentor. Drogo was her sun and stars, the love of her life, but he tormented her too. The difference is that she didn't even know Rhaegar. She has to invent him, fighting the Battle of the Trident in her mind. When she opens her eyes, the trident is replaced by the worm, a tranquil river running through Astapor, full of little islands. She sees children playing among statues. She sees a naked couple kissing in public.
0: It's kind of like our imagined past transposed upon a present which only vaguely resembles the reality of that past, right?
1: That's, that's so perfectly said. That's exactly what De- Danny's dealing with, that, the kind of collapse of all the timelines into this present moment she's hoping to remake. And as with the imagery at the start of the chapter, the sudden cool green colors, the nice breeze, this is disconcerting because Astapor was so hellish in the last Danny chapter. Now, on the river, suddenly, it looks like paradise. This was always part of the city, and the imagery here emphasizes innocence. Those kids aren't thinking about how the people represented by those statues are slavers. They're just playing around them. The naked lovers are in their own little world, as Danny thinks they have shed all the markers of culture and class that could separate them. Just like Tyrion and Tysha, or John and Egrid. I don't think these moments are here to undercut what Danny is about to do, as in real life, the statues of slavers should be brought low. Instead, I think these moments are here to remind Danny and the reader that Astapor isn't just a conveniently horrible place for Danny to tear down. It's a city full of people, and Danny is now about to take responsibility for all of their lives. I think about two main reference points for what happens in this chapter. One is John Brown, the great American abolitionist who fought against the expansion of slavery in Bleeding, Kansas, and was executed after a raid on Harper's Ferry. In his final courtroom speech, his famous speech, Brown threw aside the charges, the specific charges of treason, incitement, destruction of property, etc., to focus on what he knew was the core issue, that he was freeing people from chains. He argued that his true crime, in the eyes of the state of Virginia, was not violence, but the direction of his violence. He said... Had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, it would have been all right, and every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. That's unquestionably true, and it applies here. The masters of Astapor have committed worse violence than Danny is about to inflict, and they did it over and over again. If she did it along the same lines they did, they would be cheering her on. The other reference point for me is what's known as the Pottery Barn Rule, what Colin Powell told George W. Bush about invading Iraq, that basically if he broke the country, he bought it. You are going to be the proud owner of 25 million people. You will own all their hopes, aspirations, and problems. You'll own it all. With great power comes great responsibility. Danny's following may be small now, but it's about to grow beyond her capacity to control.
0: I think it's probably getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but I do think that what happens in the aftermath of Astapor is something that will haunt Daenerys for the remainder of her published arc. What Dany will unleash in Astapor will be violence visited on the city in several successive waves. First will be the coup of Cleon the, the Busher, who will murder the council that Danny will leave in place in Astapor. Then there will be the internal civil war between Cleon and others who are seeking power, followed by the external war with Yunkai. Finally, the Pale Mare will make a call on for decimating the besieged population. And even when the Yunkish let the Astapori flee the city, the refugees are kept outside of the walls of marine, and many of them die there. I think the easy thing is for George R. R. Martin to be all grimdark about this and how this shows about any good deeds results in evil occurring. Instead, George does a smarter thing, and that he wants us to take these moments of violent catharsis and have us look at them with a longer historical context in mind. Yes, Danny smashing the slave trade is righteous, awesome, and correct, but there are consequences in doing this. It's not simply that Danny can ride Drogon off into the sun as the people in Astapor play in flowery meadows and rainbow skies and rivers made of chocolate, where the children dance and laugh and play with jump gum drop smiles. Sorry, I was just re Team America World Police. So I happen to have that on, on my mind there. <clears throat> I think George's perspective about what happens at Astor and its consequences is best summarized in his 1982 vampire novel, Fever Dream, which of course we're doing on Patreon for all of our 5 dollar but patrons when Amber talks about the Civil War and his part that he played in it. There was a war, he said loudly. We won. Now it's done with. And I don't see why we got to go on yammering about how endlessly, like it was something to be proud of. Only good thing come out of it was ended slavery. The rest... I got no use for. I think that perspective is the one that George wants to leave rereaders with because we know what's going to happen to Astapor in the long run. We know what's going to happen to Slaver's Bay in the long run. Yes, this is an awesome and amazing moment of catharsis for readers and for Daenerys Targaryen in universe and in, in the book itself. But the long term consequences are ones that, you know, you just got no use for. Of course, though, I am getting way ahead of ourselves because we haven't even covered the titular most exciting event of the chapter itself. We haven't even edited slavery yet, for God's sakes.
1: I know, right? It's, too, it's, it's very tempting just to talk about everything that comes from here because it, George explores it in so many interesting ways, so many interesting angles. But for here, we're focusing on what, what leads Danny to make the decision to stick with it. And what encourages her is the sight of the Plaza of Punishment, where the Unsullied have been put on display. We started our journey through Slaver's Bay in the Plaza of Pride with Danny staring down the statue of the Harpy, which is how the slavers see themselves. The Plaza of Punishment shows their true face, in the form of the hideous torture, mutilation, and murder inflicted upon rebellious slaves. It's one last reminder of what Danny is dealing with here, the conversion of human beings into currency, with ultraviolence as the catalyst. But it's also a reminder that Astapor is built on fear, as well as bricks and blood. The masters fear a slave revolt above all else, so they make examples of individual isolated rebels to put fear into the rest. Danny reveals that they're as mortal as anyone else, which inspires people as far as Volantis. One last time in this chapter, the masters look invulnerable. Drinking, gossiping, surrounded by people they could have killed on a whim. What makes the fear visible is the dragons. They make the horses nervous. As well they should, Danny thinks, just hinting at her wrath that's about to boil over. It's a slow burn. George emphasizes all of Danny's trade goods as she piles them high before the Masters. Now, as with Drogon, it's a phony deal. Danny can take all of this back. But I think it stands in for Danny trading worldly things for spiritual and political change. It's also a reminder of how the Masters view the unsullied. Products for sale. Every bit as much as Danny's silk and amethysts. Same goes for Krasnus' last word on the deal. Since Dany's offering up her ships, he assumes she's marching to Westeros, and recommends that she sack a few cities along the way to give her Unsullied some experience. After all, Krasnys says, you can sell the captives to us, and we'll make new Unsullied out of them. Thus all shall prosper, he says, and he doesn't even see the irony of that. To Krasnys, the people in those cities who would be killed, tortured, and enslaved don't count among the all. When Krasniz says all, he's restricting personhood to himself, his fellow masters, and Danny. And we've heard how he talks about Danny when he thinks she doesn't understand him. But as much as Krasniz scorns her for her gender and heritage, what matters most to him is that Danny has greased the blood wheel, and might be counted upon to replace those she took. As you were saying, to take part in this system is to perpetuate it. Krasniz's advice makes plain the inherently expansive nature of this regime. There must always always be more meat for the machine, and they want to feed Drogon to it next, in exchange for the whip the masters call the Harpy's Claw. Like the Harpy statue, it's an emblem of slavery that doubles as a cultural totem for the Ghiscari. This is who we are, and Drogon is who Danny is, her id-given form, fire-made flesh. She's replacing the Harpy icon with the dragon. With the deal made, the pace of this scene suddenly picks up. It's like climbing the hill of a roller coaster. And right before she goes over, Danny wonders what Rhaegar would have done. She'll never know. Rhaegar died before she could meet him. He's a dream to her as much as her dream of winning his battle in his place. So when Danny decides to cross the Trident, as she thinks about it, it's into unknown territory, confronting not only the Masters, but a future of her own design, one in which the dragon does not lose, but reigns triumphant. You are the dragons now, she calls out to the Unsullied, Speaking in High Valyrian, to remind us of the language games one last time. And I love the detail that one of the masters, Sly Old Grasden, realizes what's going on, that Danny understood all along and was playing them, but he figures it out too late to do anything about it. It's moving too fast for anyone to stop now, sailing past the point of no return. Drogon refuses to play along with the slavers because he is Danny, and Danny is him. As she tells Krasniz, a dragon is no slave. Danny has played along so far and now finally drops the submissive mask, showing her true face to displace the harpy. She turns the harpy's claw against Krasnez, stripping the flesh of his face from his bones, and that is only the beginning. Danny calls out to Drogon, loud and sweet, George writes all her fear gone. All the fear fueling a place like Astapor, and when she defies it, the fear fades like it was never there. As she told Jorah, she's been afraid her whole life. Only during the birth of the dragons did the fear fall away. And now she feels like she knows what they're for. They're the wrath of God, and in the beginning was the word, which for Danny is Drakaris. It's the culmination of the language games, the payoff for Danny pretending not to understand High Valyrian. She reveals that it was her language all along, as much as Valyrian fire, and she unleashes both on the pretenders.
0: Mm, that's so well said, and I think a nice little detail here is that it's clear that Dany speaks highly to Krasis when she asks if he's in difficulty. As he responds to her that Drogon will not come. He's so blinded by greed that he doesn't notice the jaws of the trap just falling down around his about to be his face. His greed blinds him all the way to the bitter end. And yeah, when Daenerys calls Dracarys on him, that's uh, that's a moment there. From the Ghiscari perspective, it might feel, like, historically, if they had the time to really think about it, which they don't hear, like the Fifth Ghiscari War come again mm. with the dragons and the Valyrians roasting its people and burning the city to the ground. But instead of the Valyrians coming to burn and enslave, Danny, a Valyrian, comes to set the captives free and burn the slavers.
1: It's such a great historical inversion of that moment. The The proof of what Danny said that she means to prove different things than her ancestors proved. And then, yeah, is mm. just... Presence just explodes in gory detail with his eyes running down his face and his hair catching fire. And man, just analysis kind of fails at that point. You just got to take <laughs> it in. Generally speaking, George uses gore to complicate a moment of catharsis. We'll see a perfect example of that when Danny takes Marine and crucifies 163 slavers, one for each of the children they crucified to mark her passage to the city. The anger was fierce and hot inside her when she gave the command. It made her feel like an avenging dragon. But later, when she passed the men dying on the posts, when she heard their moans and smelled their bowels and blood, Danny put the glass aside, frowning. It was just. It was. I did it for the children. None of that doubt and self-reflection here. (laughs) Krasnus was so personally unpleasant, presiding over such a horrifying system, that we are primed to want comeuppance for him. And this is the most spectacular downfall imaginable. It feels like wish fulfillment. It's pure catharsis. The rush of a plan coming together as the audience suddenly realizes, oh, Danny never intended to sell off Drogon. And then all of her supporting characters leap forward carrying out what we realize are pre planned roles. It's so exciting. And that's before we even get to what Danny is actually doing overthrowing entrenched exploitative elites, the people who profit from torture. After so many chapters in this series about the drudgery of politics, the banality of evil turning human suffering into pieces on a game board, here is change made manifest, a concrete blow against injustice. It's deeply satisfying. (laughs) In the middle of blood and chaos, as George writes, the dusty air filled with spears and fire, the most powerful moment is one of absolute stillness. Old Grasden, the only master who knew what it meant when Danny spoke High Valyrian, is also the only one to even try and mount a defense. He calls on the Unsullied to turn their spears against Danny and her followers. This is what Danny feared. This is why she was asking Missandei all those questions about the Unsullied. She wanted to know, are they going to stick with the masters over me? What if the habit runs too deep? The whole chapter boils down to this struggle: conditioning versus change. And change wins. The unsullied joined the revolution precisely by doing nothing, by remaining still, like stone, as Danny said about them, by just letting Grasden bleed out in front of them. The masters killed babies and puppies to instill superhuman discipline in, in the unsullied, and now the masters die watching that discipline turned against them. It's just it's perfect poetic justice. Danny gives the unsullied the order that will make her alternately famous and infamous across the world. Slay the masters. Reading <laughs> that is—it's like a lightning bolt down your spine. It's an unapologetic fight for human liberation.
0: I yeah, it's hard to, to argue with that. I, I think it does feel really good, and you just feel the emotion of the moment here. Like you were saying before, the analysis kind of fails you in the moment when you're reading it, when you're in the moment. But when you kind of take a step back, I do think that you're kind of cheering for Danny as she's raining down justice and all these slavers. And yet he also is kind of complicating the catharsis in what Danny says, because she says, Slay the good masters, slay the soldiers, slay every man who wears a tokar or holds a whip, but harm no child under twelve. Twelve years old is an awfully young cutoff age, so to speak, to die for the sin of slavery. The sins of slavery, really. Twelve-year-olds are still children in the modern in the modern world, are still in the process of developing mentally and physically. Of course, we would say anyone under the age of eighteen is a child in the United States, and for much of the Western world as well. And if a juvenile, you know, commits a crime or something like that, we tend to assign lighter penalties given, you know, the age and the development of those those people at that age. But even in a Westerosi context, George R. R. Martin stated that the age of becoming man grown or woman grown is sixteen years old, as he said back in nineteen ninety nine. So, what, what, one potential justification, one very apologetic reading of, of Daenerys, what she does here. Uh, the passage indicates that the order here is to kill anyone 12 or older who is carrying a whip, but I don't think that's exactly right. The spare any child under the age of 12 comes after Danny says, kill the good masters, kill the soldiers, kill everyone who wears a toker or holds a whip. The constraint then that Danny places on all of the above is to kill no one under 12 rather than tying it to someone holding a whip. I think I think I have difficulty. I have a difficult time rather with the collective punishment of Astefor. Like i said before it certainly feels like the city's nobility supported the slave trade and if they didn't participate in the creation training and selling of enslaved and other slaves they certainly benefited financially from the practice given the horrors that denny saw in astapor it really feels justified to violently put down an entire class of people who perpetuate or who perpetuated an extraordinarily brutal form of slavery and yet i don't know how to honestly feel about it when I want to step back from it I understand it I understand the perspective that Aspore bears collective guilt for slaving but does that mean that the entire city bears collective punishment for the sin of slavery do children above the age of 11 bear collective guilt for the sins of their parents and of all of Astapori history again honestly I don't know I, I don't know that George even wants us to come away from the event with an easy conclusion I certainly have not come away from the event with an easy conclusion
1: after all it's interesting to me. A part of me thinks like, well, you need a cutoff point when you're, when you're kind of giving this order. And there are no, like, there is no moment when you magically become an adult and can assume responsibility for your own life and the world around you. It's, it's such an individual basis that I don't think there's a hard and fast rule she could follow. And I was just thinking about this and my mom's just kind of wandering around rabbit holes and thinking, well, how do you even determine who's a child over the age of 12? Like, are the unchilded right. going around asking yeah, for birth yeah, yeah. certificates and checking? Okay. This one's 13. Get him. This one's 11. Leave him alone, guys. <laughs> Like what Danny is really trying to get across here is spare the children. Like that's what she's yes. just trying to say. However, you nebul- nebulously define children, and so she's trying to give she's trying to give that order. And it's the same order that Ned would have given if he'd been the one to show up to King's Landing first, right? If he'd been the one yeah. during the Robert's Rebellion, Tywin got there first, deliberately sacked the city. Ned got there first. He would probably order his men. You know, you're, you're here to fight the soldiers. You're here to fight the lords who are staying loyal to House Targaryen. Spare the kids, and I think that would make a big difference but it wouldn't stop everyone and uh, a lot of people would have died in the process who were innocent so i think even you know you have your most well-intentioned leader with the best possible goal and uh, collateral damage i think is is just inherently part of that i think danny is is doing her best to to limit the bloodshed to those who are directly guilty but then you know so the alternative is just danny walking away like i don't you know it's it's i don't i don't think there is there is no perfect model of justice and i think there there is no exact dividing line of responsibility i think uh i think she gives gives the best order she possibly can but then yeah imagine being being a 13 year old who who dies under this order that that definitely mm-hmm. feels uh, difficult to justify and you know even the kid she spares danny thinks about it in dance like when, when one of them one of the younger members of the master class a child comes to her in marine asking justice for his parents she refuses him and as she leaves she looks into his eyes and think there goes another son of the harpy i've just created another enemy hmm. and uh and the shave pate when barristan takes over marine and he's arguing with the shave pate about what to do next the shave pate says look the the cup bearers the uh, the squires the hostages basically from the slaver families that danny has taken you know what they're going to grow up to do you know that they're going to grow up in those families within those institutions and use everything they can to bring down Danny to destroy everything she's done to re enslave people. So why would we not kill them now instead of, you know, just <laughs> we're going to have to fight them in a few years anyway. And Barriston says you kill people for what they've done, not what they might do someday. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's a great point that he makes. But the price of following that rule is looking your future enemies in the eyes and just letting them live, letting them get older to the point where they can fight you. And that's, that becomes uh, very difficult for Danny I think once once you start, start a war, you are committing yourself to collateral damage. And whether yeah. or not you think that's worth it is a decision that everyone makes. Clearly, Danny has made the call. I think part of her fear and guilt beforehand might have been about this recognition. That, Like she was saying, how many people are going to have grandchildren? I know I'm going to be killing some innocent people today. I don't know how many, but I, I know I'm going to be doing it. And she commits herself to it anyway because she believes that because she believes in what she's fighting for. And I think she demonstrates what she's fighting for when she raises the whip and then tosses it aside, singing the song of freedom, signaling that she's not here to just be another master, to dominate the Unsullied like the Masters of Astapor did. She is here to join them in breaking the chains all around them. So she's not going to whip them. She's not going to be that kind of person. She's she's getting rid of not just the Mastipors, but their tools. Not just the Masters of Astapor, but their tools.
0: <laughs> I like Mastapores, though. Mastapores. Well. We're going to
1: go with that. <laughs> so leave that in. That's perfect. She shouts to them, Freedom, Dracarys. And the Unsullied, Shout back, Dracarys. Speaking at last. The spell is broken, the numbness is lifted, and the broken men rejoin the world of the living. It feels like a miracle. It's an evolutionary moment, a transformational moment, a dividing point in history, and a crucial moment in Daenerys' character arc specifically this is her deciding that the house of the undying was real and that she is here to change the world human misery is something for her to confront rather than accept it's it's such a feeling getting to the end of this chapter and just like an elemental exhalation it's the outgrowth it's the it's the growth of fire to match the growth of ice in sam's first chapter the two titular elements in the story i don't think they've ever come through stronger than they do here you can just feel the earth shaking beneath your feet and I think this is the end of the first act of *A Storm of Swords*. If you divide it up into three acts, this is the end of Act One. The next act break, the end of Act Two, is going to be the Red Wedding. And you know, I can maybe the highest praise I can give this chapter is it's written that well. It's Red Wedding level material.
0: I think that's, I think that's accurate. I think it's also again really well said. I think, you know, Act One of *A Storm of Swords* it does feel like a three-act play, right? You have Act One being starting with with what happens at the fist of the first men and ending with mm-hmm. Drakara. so you have ice and fire so to speak yes. which i think is is really really cool absolutely uh, act two is, is is interesting because it's mostly about uh, i think I'd, I'd said three weddings and a funeral maybe in our, in our mini so which of course is Edgar tully getting married um sansa getting married which is going to be the next chapter and um yeah and uh who's the third marriage joffrey i guess of, Joffrey gets married but I think it might be act three I don't know R- regardless it, it does really feel like a, a three act play in A Storm of Swords and I think this is an excellent conclusion here where George could basically be like okay drop the curtains and we are going to take a break now for an hour and then we'll pick right back up with the rest of the story in the next episode of A Storm of Swords so yeah it's, it's, it's awesomely uh, it's awesome stuff that concludes act one of, of A Storm of Swords and again it's just uh, I think you're right too that it really only improves like this chapter is is as good as, as the Red Wedding in terms of its writing material, and I think it feels like it feels like the other end of the Red Wedding too, where the the writing is superb, and at the same time it feels like a moment of triumph as opposed as opposed to a moment of utter tragedy and mm-hmm. heartbreak, which is which is the Red Wedding. You have to have both. It's it's the two genders, so to speak. But I think that's going to wrap us up for the depth section of this episode. Switching over to foreshadowing groundwork, uh, Grolio is going to complain that Danny is willing to trade away his ships for always for something else. Um, and this actually does finally occur in Marine, where Danny finally trades away Grolio's ships in order to make battering rams. She actually tears the ships apart to make the, uh, the, the, the battering rams. I think it was it Jogo's cock is one of the, uh, mm-hmm. the battering rams that, that, that are created from, uh, from from Grolio's ship. And, and I, I just think ultimately Grolio's story is one of those understated stories of tragedy in the series because all he wants to do is just go home to his wife and he's constantly frustrated by Daenerys and kind of like the casualties of war like a Masada that I was talking about earlier he's one of those casualties because he ends up at the end of A Dance of Dragons his head gets he becomes one of the hostages of Yunkai for the peace that Danny establishes and then he gets beheaded and his head is tossed in front of uh, King Hisdar Zoloric in one of Barrison's chapters so yeah it's kind of a sad story for this guy
1: I hadn't noticed until you pointed out the great irony of that the girlio thinks he's losing his ships here but he's not, because Danny wasn't making a real deal with the Slavers, but then he loses them anyway when he gets a marine. And what a great kind of blunt symbol that is, that Danny takes the ships she could use to go home and uses them instead to be able to stay in Slavers Bay. Kinda of making kinda of making manifest her decision to focus on Slavers Bay for the foreseeable future. So Dany has her uh, vision of an enemy host armored in ice, as she thinks about it, since she's on the Trident, that is the usurper's host, that's Robert Baratheon, but the fact that she's fighting an ice army with her fire suggests that this might, in fact, be setting up her battle against the White Walkers. We might, without even realizing it, she might be having a prophetic vision of that fight.
0: Yeah, it's it, this is one of the, probably the clearest foreshadowing of Daenerys participating in the... The, the battle against the others that we see in the published version uh, of A Song of Ice and Fire, this I think is is very much um, what's going to happen. Although, you know, for a long time, I, I had had this, this belief that the final battle would be around the Trident, similar to to what happened at the end of Robert's Rebellion. Maybe that will still be the case in A Dream of Spring, although I think that Winterfell is the more likely spot as demonstrated by the show and I think it just makes the most thematic sense that Winter falls on Winterfell as opposed to, to being on, on the Trident. But it would be a... It would be really cool that way if we, if we did see a replay of, of the battle, of the Triumph between the others and Daenerys and her allies, and um, there. But I do think it's going to be something we'll see in, uh, in uh, something we'll, we will see in, in a Dream of Spring, and, and, and I do think you know it's interesting that the the enemy armored in ice. I, this is one of those things that was talked about in season eight, and one of the things I'm still kind of unsure about whether Dragonfire is effective against the others. We know it's sure. from the show rather that it's effective against the Whites, but it was not effective against the Night King, as we saw at the Battle of Winterfell in season eight, episode three. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll see what happens with that come come a dream of Spring, and I do think that there is a possibility that it will be proved just as combat ineffective against the others in, uh, as in the in the published books, as as we saw in season eight.
1: So we see the masters of astapor put a executed slave who dared rebel uh put him put him on display as a warning to the rest and that's a tactic we're going to see again in a dance with dragons when we get to volantis and there's a a centerpiece like that on the big bridge in volantis on the long bridge and it's just a connection to show you how constant the kind of this fear is across different cities different slavers that what they fear most is a slave revolt and they'll they'll commit any atrocity to try to convince their slaves that that would be a bad idea but Danny kind of uh, sparks inspiration in other cities. so You can see them really, really trying to clamp down on any possibility of slave rebellions going forward.
0: Yeah, the ripple effects of what Danny does in Astapor are felt far and wide. And in a place like Valantis, where Tyrion is told that four of every five Volantine people are slaves, it's under it's it's a very big bullseye on the people who are who are not slaves there. So they do amp up and ramp up the um, the punishments to the slaves there to try to warn them not to to disallow valantis from becoming another astapor but as i think we'll see in the winds of winter that very much valantis is going to be the next astapor but i do think it's going to be continue to be a complicated form of catharsis and that's something that i'm eager to look forward to uh, when we get the winds of winter next week or the week thereafter uh, finally for foreshadowing groundwork we do have Krasnys, when he's on fire, having being described as having a burning crown, as like twice the size of his head, as, as described here at the end of Sormosaurus Daenerys three, And that burning crown imagery is used again by Stannis when he's talking about what he saw in the fires, and when he's talking with Davos in the next Davos chapter, he says, you, "You do you need me to interpret what a burning crown means? I know what it means, asshole. I am well aware of what that means and how I'm going to be turned into ash. I do think we, we talked about this. We talked about this a long, long time ago about the, the fate of Stannis Baratheon at the end of uh, his story and what will actually happen with, with Stannis, if one of our patron episodes a, a long ways back. And I do think that as potential evidence for Stannis' future fate to be burned, um, potentially not by dragon fire, but by, by some other fire, I think it would, it would make the most sense thematically for him to die by fire uh, after he burns Shireen, of course. And it also could be symbolizing, of course, him burning Shireen and burning his heart. There's a lot of burning imagery around Stanis Breath is what I'm trying to say ultimately.
1: I love that Stanis says to Davos, look, this is a symbol so obvious that even I can interpret it. I don't need you. I don't need Melisandre. <laughs> and I think that's also a message to the reader that this is this is not meant to be a subtle concept. This this crown, this emblem of of power and might, but it actually just burns you alive, either from either literally or from the inside out. And yeah, for for Krasnus, you know, all that all that power over, over his slaves, all that power over the marketplace of Astapor, but that, that power has now been set on fire and he goes with the rest of it. That's great stuff. Mm-hmm. Sure so is. moving into a uh, theory and discussion portion we do get a, a prophecy here one of the prophecies that people love to to break apart and theorize in the song of ice and fire from Quaithe. this is a prophecy she's brought up before but she comes back specifically to tell Danny to remember it to, to remember that to go north you must go south and to go east you must go west and to reach the light you must pass beneath the shadow and i'm just curious what you think about why why bring that back on george's count why why bring back Quaithe not to give you any new information but just to remind you of this prophecy is it about to be fulfilled in some way? Does he just worry we're going to forget who Quaith is? What do you think is the deal here?
0: I have always been confused by Quaith as a character in A Song of Ice and Fire. I think I made that pretty clear. We were covering Quaith in, in A Clash of Kings in those episodes in Carth. I, I think broadly speaking, I talked about it being a potential pattern that George is integrating here where he's thinking, okay, so you have the prophetic, you have the the, the dragon dream or the prophetic dream followed by the menor figure showing up that reinforces Danny as a figure of destiny and someone who's going to be doing uh, great things who kind of is bestri- bestriding both worlds of both the spiritual and the, and the physical worlds that we see there. I think that, that could be partially it as, as we see here. But I also think this is kind of as is says, it's, it's crossing, I was about to say crossing the Rubicon, which of course is what George is basing it on, what, what is, you know, but Caesar, that's Shakespeare really, uh, is, is talking about when Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon, he, how he's making a, a leap into the next era of, of, of Roman history. And what Daenerys is doing here is making that leap into mm. the next era of, of Targaryen history. So how do you make that even more powerful? And I think George does this in, by viewing it with that sense of prophecy that what Danny is doing is not simply freeing the slaves and... You know, becoming a a warrior. What she's doing in actuality is embracing her her role here. She's embracing her her status as as a as, as a conqueror, as a almost a spiritual conqueror here. Mm. I, I I think like when when I look at what she says, you know, to go north you must go south, to go west you must go east, to go forward you must go back, to touch the light you must pass with the shot. You I mean, <sighs> know, Um, I I think what we're looking at here as well is is the potential that. We're seeing one part of Danny's journey kind of like to go journey, to go north, you must journey south, so to speak, like kind of to reclaim her her Dothraki. She has to go to Astapor and develop this army and, and learn and train the dragons how to fly and or use dragon fire. And then she's going to fly Drogon at the end of a dance with dragons to go west. You must go east. I think. Is to go back to Westeros, you must go into Essos, so to speak, farther and farther into Essos, into Slaver's Bay. To go forward, you must go back and touch the light, you must pass through the shadow. I think that's referring to her likely Dothraki arc in in The Winds of Winter. And and what it means uh, for for Daenerys to go back to, base uh, Dothrak, and to encounter the calls and the and the and the and the crones and all the Dothraki there to kind of gather up the the Kallisar as we expect her to do, I think that's what she's referring to. So I think that's broadly why Quaithe returns here with the prophecy. But I'm curious what you think, sir. Why do you think Quaith is here? Here, why doesn't she just go away? Is what I'm ultimately asking.
1: I agree with what you're saying that that George wants to emphasize that this is a. Uh, A mystical, spiritual moment for Daenerys, as well as a a political on-the-ground one, that this is about her becoming a kind of of mythical figure and entering her name in the legend books and all that (laughs) stuff. And Quaith's presence just emphasizes that, that she's been talking to her political advisors, people like Jorah, people like Barristan. And now she's talking to someone more concerned with the spiritual side of things, just to get the sense of all these narratives coming together and and forming around her. And I do think you can make connections specifically to what happens next, like the shadow of Drogon's wings passing over Krasniz right before shit goes down. You can connect that to to passing beneath the shadow to get to the light. But overall, I think it's just encouraging Danny to get past her doubts and fears and to think to herself I gotta go through some heavy shit if I'm gonna make a better world I gotta <laughs> go in what seems like the opposite direction of what I want in order to get there that's how, she, how she's gonna think about peace and war come a dance with dragons and I think it's it's entirely possible that George also wanted a moment like this but didn't yet have anything new for Quaith to say <laughs> like didn't have a new prophecy like when we get to Quaith in a dance with dragons then she's got a bunch of new information to danny so she's like here's oh, yeah. all the people who were coming here's all their symbols because by that point george just kicked off a bunch of new subplots and so Quaith has new information to tell but here he's like i need a moment to emphasize the magical side of things for danny but i don't there's i don't there's there's no new path for her to go on or new thing for her to hear about in storm of swords really so i'm, I'm just i'm just gonna repeat myself I think that might have been what happens here. But that that overall idea of of opposites coming together and having to struggle through dark places to reach light places, I think is is always relevant to Danny. So I I don't think it feels out of place here overall. Much as we're not huge fans of Quaithe, I think functionally, sometimes she serves a role, a little cog in the machine. And I think she pulls that off here.
0: I mean, you have to be... What she says in A Dance of Dragons about the, you know, lion and dark flame and all these people uh-huh. coming to Daenerys, I think is really cool. And it, and it makes sense because it does feel like, oh, this person actually does know stuff. She's seeing something in the glass candle, at least. And then when she shows up to Daenerys at the end of her arc in in A Dance of Dragons in her final chapter, where she's wearing a mask of stars, I think that's just masterful imagery that George puts down here. And he, of course, repeats, has her repeat the same phrase that she hears here again in the Storm of Swords Daenerys 3 and Danny 10 from A Dance of Dragons. And I think that's emphasizing like the next epoch of her journey mm-hmm. forward into back into Dothraki. She's going backwards to go forward, so to yep. speak. So, yeah, it works. I think it works. It, it works well, again, even if she's the worst character and she might not be. She's not the worst character in the Song of Ice and Fire. I guess that's just like, I don't know. We like our, our hyperbole like here. It's fine. Yeah, You're we allowed. like our and our tropes. It's kind of like a trope for the not a classic exactly. The worst character, right? Yeah. Oh man, well, as bittersweet as it stands, I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis of a Storm of Swords scenarios three. As always, thank you so much for listening, and thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us. If you have the chance, please rate and review Snap a
1: podcast, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere, everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash a s o i a f You can follow us on Twitter at nauticastaso a s o i a f or shoot us an email at nauticastaso a s o i a f at gmail.com. And you can find me at poor Quentin on Twitter. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam K, Wisdom Benjakot, Alchemist of Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Hodinus, a prostitute, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, Not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine, and Lord Commander Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Lady Can of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, Sir Andrew of H-Town, Archmaester Hugh of the Tower, whose Rod and Ring are of Tinfoil, E'eron Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crozai, and Ned M. Thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies for your support.
0: Absolutely. Thank you all so very much for your support. It means the world to us so join us in a few months time when we get back to act two of a storm of swords when we return with sansa stark the best stark is that what i'm hearing who will Hashtag
1: be Stark? Mm-hmm.
0: Who, who congratulations she's getting married it's the happiest day in her life
1: wait this isn't very happy no it's, it's
0: not happy at all not exactly a happy to... affair no, no, she, she's getting married to uh, not not uh, Willis Tyrell, unfortunately, as, as she had hoped for in, in her first and second chapters, but
1: to the imp, Tyrion of House Lannister, and what a marriage that will be. What a marriage it will be indeed. So yes, that'll be in a few months' time. Like we said at the top of the episode, Jeff is going to be off for a few months from the podcast as he gets home and gets to spend some time with his family. So in the meantime, I'm going to be doing some solo stuff. On the Lord of the Rings that I was doing last time. We had a break from the regular cast, some other episodes on my own, some guest episodes, so we'll definitely keep not a cast episodes coming to you for the next few months before we come back to a Storm of Swords Sansa 3. Absolutely.
0: So thank you so much for listening. Thank you all for your support. I'll miss you all for the next few months, but Emma's gonna keep you all well in good company, and we we'll see you next time for a Storm of Swords Sansa.